Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favour of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the other two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and that their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as ransom for many. afternoon. Very good to see you. Let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you that you are a God who speaks truth and light into times of darkness and confusion. We thank you that you speak love and hope at times when there is despair. We pray that we might learn from you how you would have us live Amen. I'd be grateful if you could have that passage on the sheet in front of you, because we're going to look at a few uh, verses from it. But before I do that, um, I want to just recall something that uh, Nick Robinson, the BBC journalist, wrote uh, a few years ago in 2012, uh, but it's obviously not dated, it's as relevant as ever. And he was uh, discussing with an MP, they were just discussing the sort of general culture of politics in this country. And uh, he wrote, the classic conversation I often hear in the back of a taxi cab is this, they're all in it for themselves, they're out of touch. And uh, he goes on to write, since I became a journalist 25 years ago, I've seen a crisis in trust, first in politics and then in the media. It's a vicious circle where everyone involved thinks if they do down the other, they'll be better off. So the media have a go at politicians, politicians have a go at the media, just to try to make the other person look more corrupt than you are. Press releases come into my inbox from all parties, but particularly the big two, leaping upon any allegation. The view is, let's just feed a quote to the press. There are so many press releases that say, they're hypocritical, they're foolish, things that basically attack the other side's motives. Now, ours is a culture of suspicion. It's pretty hard to escape that fact. That was certainly clear, hopefully, from what I was thinking about last week. We don't know who to trust or when to trust. In fact, we don't even know if we can trust. But again, as we saw last week, this is not something that's just emerged in the last three or four weeks, uh, let alone last three or four years. This has actually been a problem that has beset uh, the Western world in particular for the last 100, 125 years or so. Ever since Friedrich Nietzsche first articulated, we've taken him at his word, whether you realise it or not, because he wrote this, every philosophy conceals a philosophy, 
Every opinion is also a hiding place. Every word is also a mask. That's what Nick Robinson effectively picks up on. The press releases that attack the opponent's motives as if we really could read people's deepest thoughts and agendas. I mean, I've been married to my wife for 20 years and I'm still trying to sort of figure out some things and certainly she is as me. How can we possibly do that with people we just know professionally or perhaps at opposite sides of the chamber? But our suspicions convince us that the other person's motives must be bad and it's plain for us to see. You see, the root of this problem, as I touched on last week and I want to to flesh out today, is power and its abuse. So the only possible way to counter this is not to give up on power. We can't do that. But to reevaluate power, its potential, its dangers, its realities, its potential for good and ill. And that's actually precisely what Jesus does in this passage. In the reading we've had both weeks, it wasn't a mistake. There was good reason for doing it uh, both weeks. And you see, what we see at start is that it is clearly not a new problem. The mother of Zebedee's sons wants the top spots for her boys in Jesus' cabinet. She has no idea what she's asking for. As Jesus says in verse 22, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? It's very strange language. But it has sort of biblical resonance. But the, the, the guys don't realise it. And mother and sons answer in unison, yes we can. We have no doubt as to why she asks for it. The prestige and proximity to power with all the opportunities that brings in, in God's kingdom no less. But Jesus has a shock for them. And for his other disciples who who are furious that she had the idea first. That's why they're angry. And it all comes down to what power done right, or rather power done God's way, actually means. Now, please indulge a a, a small thought experiment, if you will. Uh, I suppose you could call it the Bruce Almighty scenario. So imagine that you have at your disposal the omnipotence of God. And uh, once you figure out how to square circles and how to make rocks that are too heavy to lift, you know, other brain teasers that people love to play around with, then you suddenly start to try out your new powers, see what you can actually do. I guess it's like suddenly becoming prime minister, and you suddenly realise, whoa, now what can I do? Well, what would you do? I'm sure you would have very good intentions, I have no doubt. I know there are many people with very good intentions in this building. Good and positive motives. Now, of course, in your new divine capacity, I think a little cosmic pampering is justifiable. After all, it's a pretty stressful job running the universe. So, you know, so many plates spinning, so many prayers to answer, so many crises to attend to, just a little sort of few creature comforts. But think of what you would expect from those that you rule over. What is due to you as God by right? Worship? Obedience? Certainly. Subservience? At least. After all, you're not ruling the cosmos for your own benefit. You have good intentions. You're doing it for all its inhabitants. Because yours is most certainly a benign dictatorship. 
credit where credit is due, surely. But can you sustain that beneficence? Obviously, the same could not be said of the Roman Empire in Jesus' day. And when he calls the disciples together for a chinwag, he says, look, verse 25, you, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. You know all about that. That's the way it is. There's a clear sort of pyramid hierarchy. It's the way of the world. And if you're a Jewish person living in Palestine in the first century, you would actually feel the sharp edge of that reality. An average colonial in Roman days would hardly judge Rome's rule to be benign. You see, benign dictatorship is a nice idea, but an impossibility. Because of what power tends to do to people. You see, we're suspicious of power for good reason. Suspicion, you see, actually is the only way to survive in a scary, cutthroat world. You've got to be in your guard. It's dog-eat-dog. You don't know what terror and danger lurks around the next corner. But then Jesus drops the bombshell because he's saying it needn't be like that. Not so with you, he says. You're to be different. So verse 27, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, we don't get the half of that. Remember who's talking here. You see, this is the one that Christians claim to be the God who came to earth to live with us as one of us. This is the God who gets his feet muddy in the River Jordan, who experiences human life, warts and all, who weeps, who hungers, who is sleep-deprived. You see, this is not a Bruce Almighty experiment where a human being gets to be like God. It's the other way around. The creator becomes a creature. So what does he do? What rights are his due in his position, with his identity? Well, a tough mission Certainly deserves a few soft furnishings to cushion the blows. Surely, you know, a palace berth at least. Two aristocrats with means. A contact book to dream of. And influence to die for. If I was God coming to earth, that's what I'd do. Wouldn't you? It's not what Jesus did. He wasn't born into a palace nursery, but a farmyard food trough. Without aristocratic connections, unless you go far enough back in time. In fact, with dubious legitimacy. No doubt rumours the whole of his life. You don't really know who his dad was. Without financial backing, without a military, political or academic power base to speak of, nothing. Just himself. The man, his message, his mission, just him, that's all. But it's all completely upside down. You would never start a political campaign in the way that he did. And yet he still draws a crowd, thousands in his lifetime, billions since. 
But what does he do with his power? Well, two astonishing moments to sum it all up. One private, one humiliatingly public. The private one, well, he strips to his underwear at a religious festival dinner, just with his closest friends. And then he kneels before each one and washes their feet, blisters, verrucas and all. Household slaves weren't expected to do that, even for the most honoured guests in those days. And so no wonder one of the disciples, Peter, who's often the loudmouth, he's the one who says, no, 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 surely not, you can't do that. It's just too embarrassing. I mean, you know, not very English. You wouldn't do that in this country. You wouldn't do that in any culture, actually. Can you imagine a party leader or a monarch doing that? It's really not the done thing at all. But Jesus insisted. He said, I must do this. That was the private. But it was just hours before the public. Because he gets tried by a kangaroo court, beaten and tortured by occupation soldiers, nailed naked to a cross outside town, left to die in agony in plain sight. It's weird, isn't it? I mean, in his day, those sorts of things only happened to slaves and traitors. Not the religious or respectable. And definitely not God come to earth. But here's the key. This is the difference between two ways of doing power. Between two ways, actually, of doing God. You see, we could call them the human way versus the heavenly way. The human way is what Nick Robinson's taxi drivers observe. They're all in it for themselves. If I was God, I'd struggle to resist the perks, privileges and powers in the end. As Lord Acton rightly noted about the corruption of absolute power. Or as Abraham Lincoln put it, nearly all men can stand adversity. But if you want to test a man's character, give him power. But what about Jesus? Did he pass that test of character? Could he be trusted with absolute power? It all comes down to his agenda. Would he serve himself or serve others? Especially those most vulnerable or weak. So to use his phrase, as he uses here, the Son of Man came to serve and give his life. You'll, of course, see on many war memorials around this country, especially those of the Somme, recently commemorated, the verse from John's Gospel, greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for his friends. There is great nobility in that. But too often, with rare exceptions... The higher up the power chain, the more we find this trend at work. Kings expect their subjects to lay down their lives for them. But here's the difference. Jesus the king lays down his life for his subjects. It's upside down. Even more astonishing, he does it even for his opponents. One of the last things he said on the cross was forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. The people who are banging the nails. He does it for the apathetic and the hostile. And as he says in this verse at the end of our section, 
He does it as a ransom. In fact, as the means to forgiving that hostility and independent-mindedness. His death, you see, is no futile gesture. But the very act which saves and rescues, it has purpose. He dies that we might live. Now that is astonishing service. That is sacrificial love, the definition of it. But more so, he doesn't just lay down his life for his friends. He lays down his life for his enemies. That's the way God does power. Which is the opposite to the way humans do power, on the whole. Now, obviously, there's a lot more unpacking to do than we have time for. But, but let me close by just simply coming back to this issue. of What, what has this got to do with the, the culture of suspicion? Well, I want to suggest everything. Because if we are suspicious as a result of abused power, then the only way to overcome that is for people to experience an alternative. Power in safe hands. Power for the benefit and flourishing of the other, the different, the weak, power that you can truly say loves. There's no quick fix. You can't just click your fingers. There's no, you know, if you've had your fingers burned, you can't just be told trust. You need gradually to test the water, to dip your toe in. You need to to know somebody's track record and then you take baby steps towards trusting them again. Frightening. Slow. But the only way. And for the person in power, it'll always be costly. In completely unforeseen ways. Because as he says to these two and their mum, you don't know what you're asking. He says you will drink this cup which, as we later on find out, is a cup of suffering. Yeah, you will drink it. But you don't get that yet. You see, as Jesus tells the disciples, it may even cost a life, because it costs his. But then you'd know that person loved you, wouldn't you? Not sentimental love, but gritty, sacrificial love. So Jesus offers a stark choice. He says, not so with you. His way is different. It is a matter of character. It is, dare I say it, a matter of virtue. Now, virtue is not a word we hear very much in public life these days. But as I see things, actually that is the only way. Finding a way to uphold virtue And sacrificial love in public life is the only way to break out of this culture of suspicion. And that is a mountain to climb. As I say, no quick fix. But that is the challenge. And that is what I want to think about next week. Not so with you, he says. He was not the sort of leader who expected of his followers the sorts of things he was not prepared to do himself. He took up his cross 
and calls us to follow him in doing the same. Well, what that means we will see in a week's time. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you that we can come together here and now and sit at the Master's feet. We pray that his words might ring true with us and be words we can seek to put into practice with your help. Give us wisdom, Lord, and insight and help us to trust in you as we seek to do this. In his name we pray. Amen.